Hello and welcome to this episode of Creating Artistic Resilience, a series that focuses on the experiences of artists and human rights defenders from Asia and their stories of resilience and resistance navigating art, activism, freedom and censorship in their countries. This podcast is brought to you by PEN America's Artists at Risk Connection, the Mekong Cultural Hub and the Asian Forum for Human Rights and Development. I'm your host, Manognya Yeluri. In this episode, we speak with UK-based Bangladeshi artist and activist Sophia Kareem. Sophia's life and art transformed on hearing about the arrest of a loved one in Bangladesh after he spoke up about the ongoing political and socio-economic turmoil in the country. She shares her journey since then, her thoughts on how art helps articulate dissent in South Asia and the current challenges the creative community faces with laws such as the Draconian Digital Security Act. She speaks with us today to also help us understand the impact diaspora and international solidarity can have on social justice movements in India and Bangladesh. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sophia. Hi, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. It stopped raining, so it's good, good, everything good here. Uh, it's interesting. This has been a common question that I think we've been asking a lot of people on this series, and it's always interesting to see what the response has been. Um, some responses have been quite literal, whereas others have been um, quite um, contextual to the socio-political weather of their countries. So um, <laughs> well, it's the artists standard... to come up with creative responses, I guess. It's the standard British opener, the weather. It's almost a cliche. So yeah, sport or weather. Understood. So I guess, you know, as we sort of ease ourselves into this conversation, I think it would be really good to start with understanding what made you really immerse yourself in the landscape of human rights. Because in many ways, you went from being an an architect to an artist activist. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? August 2018 was a huge turning point in my life. Um, I got a phone call um, on that day from my parents in Bangladesh saying that your uncle has disappeared. As far as we know, he was abducted um, and we don't know where he is. A few hours before he was abducted, he had done an Al Jazeera interview where he spoke about student protests that had gripped the country at that time. Um, He's a photojournalist, Shahidu Alam. So he'd been reporting on these student protests and he'd done Facebook Live um, posts and this Al Jazeera interview. Um, It then emerged that, yeah, he'd been abducted by around 30 plainclothes officers from his flat. And um, he was then arrested and uh, tortured, held in in custody, and then incarcerated for 107 days under the, it was called the ICT Act, which was the predecessor to the Digital Security Act that Bangladesh now has. And so um, from that point on, I began campaigning along with many, many others all over the world. Um, It was centered around Bangladesh, real grassroots campaigns, um, students, activists, Mm -hmm. but it became global. And I was based in the UK and um, campaigning very hard. 
and continued until his release. And I think that's when everything shifted for me, uh, the way I live in the world, the way I want to live in the world, um, what I want to do with my work. Um, yeah. Wow, that actually sounds incredibly... Um, it must have been an incredibly emotionally uh, challenging time um, having to sort of deal with this. But I think it's very interesting also to hear how a very personal experience has kind of, you know, it sort of helped you contextualize things and really sort of look beyond the the experience of, of your uncle and yourselves, yeah. your own family. When you're campaigning for someone in your family or for someone you love, um, you go into survival instinct. So it's very traumatic and harrowing, but you just go into survival instinct and you have to take on an authoritarian government, something huge and terrifying, and you have to just stare it in the eye and get into the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. um, and you do that and you just keep going. But then when you succeed... That, that kind of sensory experience of seeing someone that you fought for again. I mean, while you're fighting, you have no option but to win. It's, there's just no other option because you can't imagine your life in a scenario where you don't win. And then when you do win, this flood of joy and emotion comes, very sensory you know, experience of your family member coming back and you can touch them and hug them and everyone's very joyous but then my question is that if you only take that what happens to the struggle what happens to all the other people who mm -hmm. are still in there who didn't have any exposure um and so what we were doing for my uncle was never just about him it was never you know when they took him um they offered him in right at the beginning they offered him a statement and they said, if you sign this and promise to keep silent, this will all go away. We'll take you home and it will all go away. Mm -hmm. And he took the decision not to mm -hmm. do that because this was not about him. It was about everything. It's about the struggle. And so the fact that he, I wouldn't call it a sacrifice, but the fact that he did that, for us to then just abandon the struggle once he came out would be a, a betrayal of that, that act he'd taken to stay in there and endure what he endured and, in, and what many, many endure, <clears throat> endure but don't come out. So much of your work actually locates itself in the struggles of Asia, particularly South Asia. And my curiosity really stems from this, this idea that somehow you have made it seem that geographical location doesn't isn't as essential to the intention of actually challenging the status quo and i wonder if you could if you could help unpack that a little bit i suppose in practical terms i learned that when i was campaigning for my uncle i realized that i could do that um sitting in the uk and in fact there were many things i could do from here, which I probably couldn't have done um, back in Bangladesh. But I think both are really important. I think you have to have the on-ground um, campaigns and activism and the struggle is located on, on, on the ground there. 
Um, but then that's kind of backed up. You can back that up by um, uh, being in a, in the UK or wherever. And I actually think that um, mm-hmm. every civil rights movement has always used whatever tools they had at any given time. And it just happens to be that social media mm-hmm. is the tool but it's not just activists who are using social media. You know, everyone's using social media. That's just the environment we're in. And um, mm-hmm. I think it's anyone's duty uh, to challenge the status quo. Uh, if you care about injustice in any mm-hmm. way and you see it, it's your duty to st- challenge the status quo. But you can do that with any tool you have. Um, it happens to be that the tool I use... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, art and social media. I think something that um, that would be very, very interesting to know would be uh, to learn more about your project uh, Turban Bug, actually, if you could maybe yeah. share a little bit about how that even started. Yeah, okay. So um, Turbine Bug started uh, beginning of 2020, this protest was going to be in solidarity with Shaheen Bug. And um, f- we'd read that food was very important in Shaheen Bug. So we were going to make protest art in the form of samosa packets. And we were going to send those samosa packets mm-hmm. to Shaheen Bug afterwards. And we were also going to um, have a chorus of activists and, and audience people who were going to sing protest songs that were being sung in the India protests. Um, and so turbine bug, so basically the turbine hall, we were going to turn it into our Shaheen bug for the day. It was going to be a a place for peaceful protest. And so at that point, um, I did a call out on Instagram to artists across India and Bangladesh, but not only India and Bangladesh, from anywhere, because it's important to connect these struggles and obviously right-wing nationalism is rising everywhere. That was Trump at the time. And here you had Brexit, Boris Johnson. And I said, can you send me your art? And I'm going to print it on these samosa packets. They'll, they'll be at the demonstration and they go to Shaheen Bagh afterwards. So many, many artists, writers, poets, filmmakers, thinkers began sending their work. And I began printing them on these samosa packets. Mm-hmm. And that was how Turbine Bug started. Unfortunately, about three days before the protest was due to happen, the museum shut for COVID mm-hmm. and everything had shut down globally by then. And then, you know, ultimately the Shaheen Bug itself was shut down. Um, so the physical protest didn't right, happen. Yeah. But by now it was still going on Instagram. And so Turbine Bug has continued and has been involved in campaigns like the farmers' protests and everything that's gone on, and campaigns for political prisoners um, as they've continued. It's an incredible trajectory to see the origins of Turbine Bark and then how it sort of evolved into its digital avatar, so to say. Mm. But as much as it has been an opportunity for you to engage Um, with the wider community. I wonder if there have been certain challenges and pushback that you've also faced, maybe not just with Turbine Bark, but, you know, with different forms of digital and social media activism, really. Yeah, there are challenges. For instance, um, just before the Take Modern protest, Turbine Bark was blocked by Instagram. 
and I had to get a jur- oh, journalist. Dear. Yeah, they blocked. They said that the functions would be blocked for three weeks, um, knowing, because in the bio, it gave the date of the Take Modern protest, knowing that that would basically kill that protest. It, we wouldn't be able to make it happen. And it was very difficult for me to lift mm-hmm. that block. Um, and it was only when I got journalistic intervention and an inquiry into why I'd been blocked mm-hmm. that the block was lifted. Mm. And then, yes, there are, you know, challenges like shadow banning and um, Turbine Bug has also been trolled a few times. It's interesting that, we, that we're that we sort of talking about um, mainstream media and how social media in many ways, um, because of um, because of it, how widespread and how accessible it is in many ways, and even to a large extent, um, social media differs from mainstream media because of the differences in the way in which um, they're regulated even. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when... Um, when we sort of dig a little bit deeper into the idea of regulation. So almost, again, something that we're noticing is that, of course, throughout Asia, throughout the world, um, and of course, um, perhaps more specifically throughout Asia, there are different efforts that are being made to introduce some kind of regulation and even censorship, I would go so far as to say, into social media, into different formats and mediums of social media. Mm. And... To this, you know, to this point, especially um, Bangladesh does have its infamous Digital Securities Act. Yeah. And I think in more ways than one, even you've campaigned um, for political prisoners and for um, artists in particular who have been, um, you know, unfortunately who have fallen victim to this particular legislative instrument. And I wonder if there's something that, that you'd like to share with us regarding you know, the Digital Securities Act and what you've really been seeing as an activist. Mm. Okay, so I think, you know, this follows on from um, the previous um, point that we were discussing. So what's happened is that um, authoritarian regimes have realised that this digital space is is the one weak link in their chain now because they've pretty much co-opted most organs of the state Um so they've, you know, co-opted um, the judiciary, the police and mainstream media. They've got them in their pocket now. And so the one space left, which is out of their control, is the digital space. And um, because that's a space of mass mobilization, because um, you now have two arenas for mass mobilization, One is the physical space, street protests, street gatherings, etc. And the other is the virtual world of of the digital um, space where people can mass mobilize. And so that's a threat and it's out of their control. And it's a space where they can be criticized or scrutinized and which they don't want. And so acts like the Digital Security Act are introduced and Bangladesh has introduced this. Um, and artists, singers, activists, journalists have all been, um, as you said, victims of this act. But it's so mm-hmm. far-reaching and 
almost terrifying because um, so it targets you for online content. Um, I mean, you always had mm -hmm. uh, laws like sedition laws anyway. Um, but now online mm -hmm. content, which is regarded as tarnishing the image of the nation or seditious in some form, mm -hmm. um, is struck with the Digital Security Act. But the way these laws work is that now even for liking certain Facebook posts, you can be jailed under the Digital mm -hmm. Security Act. Um, and, and this mm -hmm. includes even some in Bangladesh, certain minors, um, very young, um, I think teenagers, have been jailed for, for liking certain Facebook posts. There are countless cases and it um, got worse during the COVID pandemic where... Uh, Mm -hmm. There are many cases of people who were um, incarcerated under the G Digital Security Act because they'd criticised the government's handling of the COVID pandemic or exposed corruption. Mm -hmm. And this is basically the weapon of a thin-skinned, paranoid government that cannot tolerate any criticism or forget about criticism, even any scrutiny, which under a democracy is the norm. You're supposed to be able to scrutinize a government under a democracy, but they just can't tolerate it. And so acts like the Digital Security Act signify the collapse of democracy effectively in our era. I think that you actually summed that up um, uh, very well, because again, as I mentioned, there are different instances, um, almost variations of um, these sort of social media uh, or internet, um, uh, you know, regulation laws that are sort of cropping up. And they're all cropping up with the same intention of attempting to safeguard um, the sovereignty of the countries that they, you know, have been enacted in. And I think that's the other thing also uh, noticeably the definitions in these legislative instruments are very vague. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, they use words like dangerous, for instance, without actually defining what that means. And yeah. and I'm sure invariably that's that leads to so much. Um, I mean, you just don't know. Like you mentioned, um, it's possible to like a Facebook post and mm. it's open to interpretation that this is now a dangerous act. In yes. Some way. Yes, that's right. Um, and what usually happens is that this act, like most of these laws, are weaponized against generally the more vulnerable in society who are oppressed. So um, they often work, work in tandem with other kind of laws. I mean, I don't know if India has a Digital mm -hmm. Security Act yet. It probably will have its equivalent, but... You know, like the acts it has, for instance, the UAPA law is very much weaponized against, mm -hmm. um, say, for instance, oppressed castes. So you have groups of people who, in order to rise from the shackles of their bondage, of their centuries long of oppression, um, need to mobilize. Mm -hmm. That's always happened. It happened with um, the... Um, black liberation movement in America and similarly there 
mm-hmm. um, during in you know the civil rights movement, the police would come down hard on those groups of people who were trying to rise. And so the same thing is happening here now. So, for instance, the UAPA law in India is used very much against the oppressed caste. When they try to rise from the shackles of their bondage, they're labelled as terrorists and sent mm-hmm. to the dungeons. Um, and so they're used against, you know, the sort of whole classes of people in order to maintain... Mm-hmm social uh, suppression that acts already in society. What still um, surprises me, if I can see that really, is um, how incredibly immersed you are in exactly what's happening in South Asia, in Bangladesh, in India, um, despite the fact that you are quite far away geographically speaking. Mm. And I think to, to summarize, um, really, how do you see the international community and the diaspora being of help? Can they be of help? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that they have to be of help. Um, there are several facets to this. Um, diaspora solidarity is essential. And frankly, there's just not enough of it. Um, the spaces mm-hmm. for dissent, I mean... What's happening in in India and Bangladesh is absolutely terrifying. We're now at a, a precipice. It's, it, if this is where we are now and, and the trajectory continues, the, the consequences are imponderable. Um, part of that is that mm-hmm. the spaces for dissent have very much shrunk in both those countries. Um, whereas for us based in the UK or for the diaspora, um, wherever they are, Fortunately, at this stage, uh, we have the relative privilege of Mm -hmm. safety. And so the way I see it is that if Mm -hmm. artists um, back in our um, motherlands um, are are taking those huge risks as they are, we really have no excuse Mm -hmm. where in the kind of comfort of our safety, we're not doing anything. So that's one side of it. Mm -hmm. But also what's really important with diaspora solidarity is that um, for me, what I do is as much about raising awareness amongst the UK population. And that's because our own Mm -hmm. UK governments are complicit, very much so. And I think I want to get the message Mm -hmm. out. And a lot of the UK followers um, who follow me, I think, have mentioned that their eyes have opened somewhat by this. I want to get the message out that whilst our own governments might provide us with a certain level of civil civil liberties here, they very much endorse mm-hmm. fascist regimes elsewhere. Um, you know, this is not clean. You know, we, just because they're giving us civ- civil liberties here, what about the fact that they're endorsing fascism elsewhere? And Sometimes people in the UK who follow Turbinebug, they say, oh, you know, now I know I've seen what's happening in India and Bangladesh and I, I didn't realize uh, what can we do to help. And I say the main thing you, sh- you can do to help is really to hold your own governments to account. Listen to the different narratives and the hypocritical narratives that they give, the double standards that they put. You know, why do they talk about Russia and Iran, but not about India? 
look at their narratives in terms of what they define as extremism. Islamic extremism mm -hmm. is is seen as the, an existential threat. Hindu supremacy, mm -hmm. they're obviously hunky-dory with that, not a problem. Mm -hmm. Look at the kind of military mm -hmm. campaigns that they impose on others. Um, and so this, this is really important in terms of diaspora solidarity. And, and actually, the activist groups that have operated here, for instance, South Asia Solidarity Group, who I work with, they've been active for over 30 years, mm -hmm. and they've always campaigned on both what's happening over there in India and Bangladesh, but also against racism, imperialism, war on terror, Islamophobia here, because the things are intertwined. Mm -hmm. You know, like our countries right. have, have common enemies, you know, Trump, Johnson, uh, they're not going to say much about Hindutva because they've got the common enemy of Islam. The last thing I'll say is um, on diaspora solidarity mm -hmm. is that... Um, the reason I did Turbine Bag and Shaheen was to also raise awareness of the resistance movements that are happening in our parts of the world. For instance, Shaheen Bag in, in, mm -hmm. in that case. Because um, however bleak things are, the resistance is incredibly vibrant and inspiring and actually much more progressive than anything that's happening in the West. So, um, you know, in Bangladesh, students' movement is really, really strong, whereas here there's very, very virtually no student movement to talk of. In India, um, in terms of the resistance, you're looking at um, strong organization of women. You're looking at a progressive form of Islam, which is uniting with the Dalits, Adivasis, op oppressed castes uniting with farmers, laborers, they're against corporations. They deal with things like environmental campaigning, um, gender violence, mm -hmm. women's rights in a much, much more progressive way than anything I'm seeing in the West. Shahinbag was pro the greatest women's resistance movement of our time, yet hardly anyone in the UK mm -hmm. even knew about it. You know, for all their talk of them being ahead in terms of women's rights, while we're sitting in a burqa with no agency, apparently. Shaheen Bagh was a movement mm -hmm. that was led mainly, but not only, by Muslim women. It challenged not only patriarchy, but it also challenged Western stereotypes of our women. And I didn't see any equivalent mm -hmm. movement like that against Trump or Johnson in the West, you know, for lo lots of sort of saying, oh, this is really bad and very worrying what's happening, but I didn't see that kind of movement. And I wanted UK audiences to see the vibrancy of movements like Shahinbag and, and what they look like, because I think they have a lot, a lot to learn. I think, again, that that's a very, very interesting point that you make. And just to sort of um, maybe attach really another question to that, because especially, like you said, um, almost... Um, setting an example of, um, you know, uh, protest movements and and really different ways of resistance. Um, I know, again, that this is a conversation that we've been having with other artists who have um, been on this series. And 
as you said, attaching to that question, do you find that artists have um, that they that they themselves are creative when it comes to different forms of resistance? Because of course there is um, the there is the idea of using art mm-hmm. to resist. Mm-hmm. But then, do you feel that the artist community itself is responsible for creating different um, and almost innovating? on different forms of resistance and dissent. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, sort of art and activism has become a buzzword a bit in in the art market. Mm. And they, I mean, they're actually trying to market it now, as they always do, the kind of established art market they want to commodify certain movements or revolutions in art and at the moment they're very much seeing this as a kind of revolution which they're trying to commodify and sell as something new but actually it's nothing new I know of no civil rights resistance movement that didn't use the art of dissent and that's not only in visual art you know that's Mm -hmm. poetry literature music it's nothing new because it's part of life you know Art is a reflection of human spirit and um, and the pain and suffering of, of, of humanity. So obviously there's always going to be the art of dissent. And so, yeah, I think artists just continue to make that. And because it uh, resonates with people and it gets a message across, it's seen as a real threat mm-hmm. to governments. And so the more as we're seeing a rise of authoritarianism, we're also seeing a crushing of art, um, which comes with that territory. We could definitely have a much longer conversation about this, but as um, as we sort of wrap up this particular episode, I do wonder if um, there's something that you would like to share to those who are listening with respect to how the creative community can continue to to be hopeful in these times because I think that we could all we could all use a little bit of hope and a little bit of um, something to help us build ourselves up and maybe stay resilient. Yeah, I think one thing I'll say um, in terms of turbine bug. Um, so ter- the word turbine is from the Greek word vortex. Um, it's a machine for producing continuous power and turning energy into useful work. And I think that's what Turbine Bug is. It just tries to do useful work. But part of that is just getting to know other fellow artists as friends. And so, you know, a lot of the time, you know, we think campaigning, campaigning, activism. A lot of the time, it's not that. I might just be messaging my fellow artists about some art they put up, which isn't even to do with politics or activism. And so I really like that. And what were you thinking? And just talking about art, talking about family, talking about friends, um, and really acting as a family and, and as a community. Because this is an interesting moment in history where my fellow friends are living under an era of fascism and authoritarianism. And that's a very, very difficult era to be living under with huge stresses. And, you know, with what happened with COVID, they're living under immense stress. And it's just about 
acting like a friend and a fellow human being. You've got to have, um, if you're not looking out for the people around you, then what kind of activist are you really? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just about, um, I've got to know many people, many fellow artists, and we just talk about art, how are you, you know, just venting about the political, you know, often their their relationships with their family are breaking up because their family may be supporting the government or opposing their activism. And I think one aspect of activism that people don't consider is that it actually can be really, really lonely and very difficult because what ends up happening is that you can lose friendships and you can lose love and support from your family and it's really hard to do what you do without love. Um, and so, yeah, I think love is a really crucial part of it. Of, you know, I think you can fight and you can fight, but once you've kind of lost love and support from people around you, that's when you're the most vulnerable mm -hmm. as an activist. Thank you so much for this, Sophia. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I think that if if there are listeners who would like to know more about you or um, your project Turbine Bag, where's well, how do they find you? What's the best way to find you? Um, so Turbine Bag is on Instagram at Turbine Bug underbar mm -hmm. art. Um, so you can DM me or follow. And then my website, if you just look up my name, you'll find my website. Yeah. So you can email me or reach out any way you like. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sophia. And really, thank you so much for sharing all this information, sharing your insights and really sharing space, whether it's through Turbine Bag or whether it's through conversations like these. And we really, really appreciate having having you here on this series. So thank, thank you. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. Thank you. And stay well. And that's it for this episode of Creating Artistic Resilience, Voices of Asia. You can listen to more episodes by visiting artistsatriskconnection.org and follow us on at risk artists on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to get in touch with us with your feedback and thoughts, you can write to us on arc at pen.org. Thank you for tuning in.